then and then start when we're ready to. Okay, are you ready, Judith? Yeah, I was just telling IT that it was working. <laughs> okay. Yep. And you do the countdown then, and I will okay. introduce it. So, um, five, four, three, two, one. Well, hello everybody, and welcome to the July 2021 version of Practico's Costs Chats Between Friends. Um, the friends on this occasion are Laurel and Hardy, that's to say Andy Ellis, Managing Director of Practico, and myself, Jeremy Morgan, ex-Costs Barrister, and now a consultant to Practico. And we are very happy to be joined by Judith Ailing QC of 39 Essex Chambers. Um, first of all, many congratulations to Judith for taking Silk this year. We, I was really, really pleased to see that. Um, and secondly, uh, it really is true to say that Judith is a, a friend in the sense that I think she was the first person I recruited to the cost team at 39 when I moved there. And so obviously I saw, you know, a star in the making and I'm really pleased that it's all worked out so well for her this year. Um, we're going to uh, cover a fair amount of ground today, but not in a, a way that hopefully is off-putting. Um, we're going to mention, among other things, the wonderfully named Lacuna Subcommittee of the Civil <laughs> uh, Procedure Rules Committee. I just love that so much when I heard about it. Um, we're going to touch on budgeting, um, particularly in connection with group litigation, look at some fairly knotty issues about Part 36, which never seems to fail to throw up some new points for decision. Um, sometimes you think, well, it's also complicated with Part 36, why don't they go back to Calderbank? But uh, nevertheless, the certainty which Part 36 gives, or usually gives, or tries to give, is, I think, very welcome. Um, and finally, we're going to look at some cases on the Solicitors Act, which are very dear to my heart because the Victorian cases on the Solicitors Act are um, fascinating. They show how, um, how much Victorian judges knew about costs and how much they cared about it in contrast to their, um, their successors, although judges now have been, had, have been dragged kicking and screaming to have to know about costs. And um, there are some issues which will dog solicitors who aren't terribly careful about the drafting of their retainers. So um, with that uh, quick overview, I'd like to ask Judith to open the session by talking a little bit about budgeting. Thanks, Jeremy. Um, the, I'm just gonna talk about a couple of budgeting cases, not in great detail, but I think they are useful to look at. So the first um, is a, decision in the one of the by one of the asbestos masters but I think it's interesting for some of the um, general comments he makes it's master Davison and he um, he's it's an authority that he says is given with the authority of all the other costs the asbestos masters so it's interesting from that point of view really and he makes some general comments about the views of judges masters in the QBD, their views about cost budgeting. So it's a decision called Smith and Ford um, 2021 this year. And it was an application by the defendant in a um, asbestos case, but an asbestos fatal case um, to disapply cost budgeting. And obviously the general rule in the all asbestos cases, whether they're mesothelioma strictly or asbestos, and whether it's live or fatal cases is that cost budgeting doesn't happen and that's 
um, set out in one of the notes. There's no rule to that effect, but it's a long established convention agreed between the masters. And um, the defendant applied, as I say, to disapply dis that convention and to um, put cost budgeting in place. And really in quite a short and pithy decision, Master Davidson was having none of it. Um, and he, um, his views were these really, that it is the convention in these cases to rely on detailed assessment. And if the defendant wanted to have cost budgeting, it had to show by means of evidence, which it would have been very difficult to produce, that cost budgeting wasn't an effective way of controlling costs in asbestos cases. And um, obviously the defendant hadn't begun to do that in this particular case. And as I say, it's very hard to see how they would do it generally. But what Master Davison said was that the QB masters, the chancery masters and the cost judges did not necessarily express or share this defendant's confidence that cost budgeting was a better way of um, controlling cost and detailed assessment, which I think is quite an interesting general comment. And I, I don't think you see that very often, something of that frankness from the judges who are obliged to deal with cost budgeting. And um, as I say, I think it's surprising, but, but it looked at in the context of the particular decision and what he was asked, being asked to do, it's not surprising at all. So the other decision I was going to talk about in cost budgeting goes precisely the other way, really. Um, it's decision of the Competition Appeals Tribunal by Mr Justice Trower called Vattenfall and others against Prismian. It's a £37 million cartel case. Um, it's not a case where there's an application for a collective proceedings order, which has a cost regime all of its own. But it was an application for cost budgeting. And the, um, the judge acceded to that request that that was going to be a sensible way of um, trying to manage the costs. And the, one of the reasons that budgeting was applied is that there were already concerns that the costs were going to be disproportionate to the value. By the time the decision was made about budgeting, the claimant had already spent over two million pounds and its future estimate was nearly six in a case which was, well, the defendant said it was worth far less than the 37 million pounds the claimant thought it was worth. So the judge found that properly prepared budgets are a useful case management tool where questions of proportionality arise and the greater cost scrutiny they facilitate is, he said, a good and proportionate response to the proper control of costs of litigation. But I think it's interesting, there is now on the Competition Appeals Tribunal website a resultant decision from that where the judge has been asked to actually do the budgeting. Um, um, and I, I think it's quite instructive, really, as to how broad brush an approach the judge had to take, because it, it is really difficult, as we all know, to budget a very big litigation like that, to, to give it the degree of scrutiny it would get on detailed assessment. Um, so that the parties were looking at disclosure about expert costs and trial costs. And if you look at that decision, and it's the 28th of June of this year, and as I say, it's on the CAT website, a pretty broad brush approach is taken, really. Um, so it's a million, um, a million pounds for this and two million pounds for that. I, I think it is probably lesser scrutiny than you would get on detailed assessment. I'm pretty sure of that. Um, but it's obviously a balance because the court wants to have control as it's going through and as it's making case management direction. So I, you can see that that's the reason why it was done in this case.
Can I, can I just interrupt for yeah. a moment to say something I should have said right at the outset, which is um, you don't need to take copious notes of all of this if you're <laughs> watching, um, because uh, there will be a written summary sent out to people on the Practico database um, fairly soon. And uh, if you're not on the Practico database, you can sign up uh, for such summaries. Um, Andy, I mean, the, the idea of, of um, budgeting in group litigation, um, and particularly in this sort of litigation you get in the, in the competition appeal tribunal. Any mm. thoughts on that from a practical point of view? Yeah, I think it's interesting that they're, um, that they're willing to use that tool. It's a, it's an interest, it is an interesting contrast. You, you, you've, got that, you've got the first decision on the, on the asbestos side, which is very much, well, we at the sharp end who have to do budgeting are really fed up with it all. And, you know, we, we, we wouldn't really want to, we don't want to do it. Um, and really nobody likes it anyway, um, which is, a, which is a, I thought, a bit of a wide claim. Um, I'm not quite sure how he can yeah. talk across judges in the same way who don't actually do budgeting, but there we are. I suppose they they, they know the extent to which uh, budgeted cases still the arguments they hear about uh, 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 about um, discretion to uh, go above or below budgets. But that's a different that's a different story. Whereas the this is sort of a line of a fresh approach of you know sort of well we want to control costs so let's do budgeting and it's not something you you naturally expect from Competition Appeal Tribunal. Um, so I, I actually, I actually welcome that. I think that is a that that is a um, generally a good thing. Um, I wonder if they'll have the same. Uh, I wonder if they'll have the same attitude about it once they've been through a few rounds of variation <laughs> applications. I guess <laughs> the as the case goes through, we'll see. But I think it is interesting because I've been I was involved in the RHA, the UK TC application for a collective proceedings order. I was involved in the funding arguments. And of course, if you're applying for a collective proceedings order, whether you've got adequate cover for your own cost and adequate cover for the other side's cost comes into the decision making about whether you get the order. So the cat has got to scrutinise costs. Um, and I, I can't help but think that partly must have played some part in the decision making here that it's used to looking at costs it wants to make case management decisions which are informed by the costs and estimates just weren't going to cut it really no i think that, that that's right and we've seen we've seen people um in progressive stages of i think breast implant litigation there were there, there, there were applications for budgeting and judges decided no we'll just have updated estimates We'll never know because of it, because of the way that those those cases um, partly fell over in the end, whether that was uh, any use or not. But um, I mean, I think it's interesting that but the, the the application on on the asbestos case and the cat case was from the defendant side because they yeah. have got. I think you know defendants have got a legitimate you know uh, interest in in budgeting for what they think the uh, uh, the adverse cost side of the litigation is going to be. Why wouldn't they? Yeah, I mean, because I've had fairly recent experience of a case involving a child, a very unusual case, which had actually been issued in 90, 1995, but we've just had a declaration that the, the original settlement wasn't binding because the child, when she reached 18, didn't have capacity. But the defendant applied for that to be cost budgeted and it fell under the £10 million limit, probably, it's not quite clear. But the judge found it was such an old case that it never been in Jackson's eye, never been a glint in his eye that that sort of case would be cost budgeted. Mm. And we, the, the, the claimant um, was successful in persuading the court not to budget. But again, that was a defendant application. It probably should have been made earlier mm. if they were going to really push it. Um, 
So the court agreed with the claimant on that as well, that detailed assessment would be enough. Yeah. And yeah. um, we could actually... Should we... Um, yeah, we... Sorry. There were a couple of cases we were going to look at on group litigation cases, but actually I could mention them now, that the two Weaver decisions of... The British Airways decisions of Mr Justice Daney, yeah. but actually, Andy, they're relevant because they're group litigation mm -hmm. in which the costs are being budgeted, actually. Yeah. So he's obviously, there are two or three decisions in which he's budgeted the um, common costs, and he was, the, the two recent decisions, January and June this year, he's being asked to look at the individual costs. Um, so they were budgeting the lot, basically, and he's he's been asked to look in a lot of detail already as the litigation goes through at what's allowable, what's what's going to be recoverable. Yes. Can, can you just uh, give us a quick heads up on those two Yeah, so there, um, two points. Two, it's the British Airways data breach litigation where a group litigation order is in place and there are likely to be 500,000 potential claimants. So there's a decision, of, um, Mr Justice Saini, of um, January this year, and the question was whether um, advertising costs were recoverable at the budgeting stage. And he held that those advertising costs weren't recoverable, applying motto and trafigura in the Court of Appeal, which is, of course, binding on him. So that, that is a broad application in GLO cases. Um, this is, just to, to be clear, this is advertising for... Potential claimants yeah. to, to yeah. people who might want to, yeah. to join so, in the litigation. So the, the, the strict costs of the advert that's required by the rules on group litigation under Part 19 are recoverable because clearly you've got to do that to get the GLO off the ground. But the sort of general advertising costs and the claimants, I mean, this this must be a factor. They'd already spent over four hundred thousand on adverts, and they were going to spend another five hundred and fifty. So that is part of the general overhead not it's not a recoverable cost into parties and in reaching that decision he applied the indemnity principle that solicitors wouldn't have been able to recover it from their own clients it was general overhead so that's that's the route by which he got to the decision as well as motto and trafigura so i think that's that's potentially quite an important decision in the context of increasing group litigation and it was a million pounds overall, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Both, exactly. It was exactly a million pounds, I think, the past and, and future costs. Yeah, yeah. And then in a second decision, he was asked to look at um, individual costs of sending out round-robin letters, and he'd already allowed something in the common costs for the, the, sort of the strict Fiona cost of drafting those letters. And the claimants were proposing that they should have something for pressing the button and sending out letters to individual claimants to update them. And that was absolutely scotched. Um, the, the proposal had come down to about £600 per claimant. But if you multiplied that by the number of claimants, it was obviously a huge amount of money. And the judge said that it was um, simply not recoverable. Um, the unit costs incurred in sending out a standard letter, if you approached it on that basis, would be neither reasonable nor proportionate. And all that was needed was what he called keystroke work to send the letters out. So there was no allowance in the individual budgets for that work. And as, as I say, there was some allowance in the generic budget for the cost of actually drafting those letters in the first place. So I think that's also potentially important and he applied both motto and trafigura and there was a decision of Mr Justice Langstaff in the Morrison litigation which he also applied 
Um, so, so they look like small points, but I think they they are potentially of, of wide impact when looks when one looks yeah, at like, like, the litigation there is. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like most of these cases, they, they, you know, it looks like pennies and halfpennies, but you know, where you've got many thousands potentially claimants, then it it, it it can come to more than that. And I think it's a that's a that's a natural um, uh, path to follow um, now that really virtually all communication is electronic. Is a, you know we are in a different world now, um, and there would be but yes, I mean there used to be you know there, there's legitimate points about that. You know you physically have to post a letter to somebody, and you've got excess costs of stationery, and you've got excess costs of postage, and those at a minimum need to be covered. Um, uh, but with uh, uh, with making sure your database is up to date, and then pressing button that says publish, well then why would that be anything other than a general cost? Well, I remember. A very long time ago, one of the first cases I did with you, Jeremy, in Gower Chemicals, having an argument with Mark Friston about six-minute units on generic letters. And I think that was one of the very early Greek litigation order cases, yeah. wasn't it? And Master yeah. Wright, it was Master Wright, and he got incredibly cross about it all. But anyway, as you say, Andy, that was in the old days, of letters going out to individual claimants, it was quite a different environment, really. Yeah, exactly. Shall we move on then to, yeah. to part 36? Um, and the first thing we wanted to think about there was the, the prizes under rule 3617 for a successful um, claimant's offer. Yeah, so there's been, it, it is, a, I think, a significant court of appeal authority on the part 36 prizes and that there are some other high court decisions. And as you say, Jeremy, part 36 just carries on despite all attempts to reform it and make it um, clear and simple, it throws out cases all the time. But I, I suppose partly because the prizes are now pretty significant or they can be. Um, so the first case I was going to look, we were going to look at is the Court of Appeal case from the end of last year, Telefonica and the Office of Communications. And, um, what, what had happened in this case was that um, it, was, it was a claim for restitution and it was possible to calculate precisely what amount would be recovered if the restitution claim succeeded. And the claimant calculated that at one point as 52 million and then increased it to 54, but left on the table a part 36 at the earlier 52-ish million. The defendant didn't accept that. It was an all or nothing case, what um, the Court of Appeal calls a binary case. The defendant lost, and so it followed really that the claimant beat their own Part 36 offer. Um, when it came to the judge applying the Part 36, being asked to apply the Part 36 consequences, he, um, he found that it had been a um, legitimate offer under part 36, and that's one of the factors under part 36, 17. Um, and he went on to award the 75,000, which obviously was nothing in the context of the sums being recovered in this case. And he also awarded indemnity costs, but again, probably not gonna make that much difference. The big ticket part 36 price in this case was interest. And the judge at first instance, looking at how much that interest was going to be, didn't award it. And he said it would be disproportionate. And that was then appealed to the um, Court of Appeal. And the Court of Appeal 
disagreed with the judge and said that if you were going to get one of the four consequences, um, you should probably get all of them. And it will be a rare and unusual case following the judgment of Mr. Justice Stewart, whose reasoning they adopted on that. It will be special circumstances where you didn't get all four consequences. And so that the, the threshold, well, there were two, two important um, strands to that. One was that the once the judge had found that it was um, just to apply the Part 36 consequences, then you get all of them, unless, as I say, there are special circumstances. Um, and, and also he found that it was um, a, sent a legitimate offer to um, compromise the proceedings. It wasn't a sort of sham or technical offer of the kind which um, claimants can make. So it, once that threshold had been crossed, it was a legitimate offer, not unjust to apply the consequences, then you get all four of them. And as we know, if a defendant wants to um, disapply the usual Part 36 consequences, having failed to beat an offer, um, it, that's a very high threshold to cross. And the Court of Appeal reiterated in this case that it was a formidable obstacle. That's the phrase that now seems to have become the enshrinement of the test of the formidable obstacle. So the claimant succeeded in getting interest on damages and costs. And what the Court of Appeal also said was it doesn't follow from an order that you get um, interest above base rate, that it has to be the full 10%. So that's where the judge's latitude comes in. It's not in working out whether you give interest at all. And of course, what the, the, the other um, factor which is, is very relevant is that if you start looking at by how much an offer has been beaten in any other way than to decide whether it was a legitimate offer, you're getting back to the Carver and British Airways test of whether you've just beaten an offer or just not beaten it. And that's not a test that you're allowed to apply anymore. And that's why the rules have changed. So I think that is a really important confirmatory decision on the way part 36 has to work. I think it's important also that um, they ended up, I think, giving one and a half percent interest over and above the two percent um, rate that was the commercial rate. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's where, if you like, proportionality, as yeah. you say, can be brought in. Um, but it's important also to see it's, this isn't a judicial fudge with the Court of Appeal saying, "Well, we, you know, we think the rules are clear, but we can we can fudge it." It's quite clear in the rules themselves that ten percent is is a maximum. And um, therefore, to allow a, a lower rate is, is actually part of what the rules um, expressly permit. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, as you say, they, they follow the rules very tightly, actually. Whether you're not, it was a legitimate offer is part of the threshold as to whether, whether you apply the consequences at all. Once you've got um, over that threshold and it's not unjust to apply the consequences, then there are the four part 36 prizes. And um, the, there is latitude, as you say, in what rate of interest is awarded, and that's where the proportionality test comes in, not in looking at whether you apply it in the first place. So, so at least that part of Part 36, I suppose you can say, is clear. And um, it, we know now that there are very high thresholds to depart from the Part 36 prizes if you've beaten the offer, which doesn't stop people trying, but uh, it is a really high threshold. The, the amount of interest, of course, will still be pretty much at large because it's not intended to be compensatory, this extra bit. So there's no real yardstick for 
for determining how much should be allowed. It is much uh, dependent on the judge's discretion. Yeah, and as we know, whatever decision the judge comes to on that, that would be really difficult to appeal. So if, if that's what the judge had done at first instance, it would have been very difficult to impugn that, whereas not awarding it at all makes it appealable, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But there was another case where um, it was held to be unjust to order um, the Part 36. Yeah, so um, that's the decision of um, Head and Culver Heating. And I think this is an unusual case because... Um, the only other case which is much cited where the Part 36 consequences weren't applied was where it was a child, that's Hewitt, and it was reasonable for the claimant to wait and see how the injury would develop before deciding whether to accept a Part 36 offer. And of course, there are, that happens very often in child cases that you have to wait until the child is in their teens before you can see what damages are recoverable. But in so it's head and culver heating, um, which is a 2021 decision in the High Court of Mr. Justice Johnson, a decision of May of this year, um, is a decision which is in itself, it's been to the Court of Appeal and back on compensation for a lost years claim in a fatal case. It's, it's a very important personal injury decision. But the, the claimant made a part 36 offer to accept 2.249 million and got just a bit more than that, about 2.26 million. And of course, the claimant, um, the defendant, sorry, had to um, show that it was unjust not for the claimant not to get the Part 36 consequences. They had to overcome the formidable obstacle test, but the judge agreed that it would be unjust to apply the Part 36 consequences in this case because the claimant introduced very late evidence, which was the reason that the um, claimant then beat the Part 36 offer. It, it is an interesting decision because actually the defendant hadn't objected in the end to that late evidence going in, but obviously what it couldn't argue at the stage when it agreed to the evidence going in was that it was going to be prejudiced at the Part 36 stage. So, but so despite the fact that it agreed to the evidence going in, it was then entitled to argue and succeeded in an argument that that late evidence had completely changed things in terms of the Part 36 pitch and it shouldn't pay the Part 36 consequences. And so the, um, the claimant didn't get the Part 36 prizes in that case. But, but that is, I think, it, it is an unusual case and it's a rare case where that happens outside the child context. Um, I was just thinking of, of what else we've got on this. Um, there's a couple of other cases. It's not that unusual for people to try to disapply the um, Part 36 consequences. Um, in one case, there was an objection based upon a, an alleged defect in the Part 36 offer. Yeah, so um, I think there have been a couple of cases where um, losing parties have tried that recently. So the most recent of those is um, King's Security. And um, it was a, the defendant tried to argue that the, there hadn't been a 21-day relevant period within the meaning of CPR 36. And the, um, the claimant relied on a 2020 decision in which a very similar argument had been run. That's a decision called Essex County Council and UBB Waste where a, a similar technical objection about 
21 day period had been um, kicked out by the court. So the, the claimant's letter said that if, in, in the usual way, that if the offer was accepted within 20, 21 days, the part 36 consequences would flow. Um, but the email had been, it was sent by email at 4.54. They hadn't checked that email service was okay. And when the letter was actually received by DX, it was the 8th of March. And so if you looked at the date in the letter, the, um, the relevant period wasn't 21 days. Um, it was two days less than that. But the, the judge was prepared to say that the letter should simply be construed as meaning that the 21-day period was... Um, from the date the letter had actually been received rather than the date it was sent by email, even though the date in the letter was actually an earlier date. So they were prepared to overlook an express date in the letter in order to find that the Part 36 offer was valid. And I think that's going back to the old Court of Appeal authority of C&D, but I think it shows just how much the courts dislike those technical objections and quite how far they will go to find that a Part 36 offer is valid. So that's, yeah, two High Court decisions within about six months in which similar technical objections have just been given the heave-ho. Uh, and no tears, I think, for, for that. Would you agree, Andy? Oh, I would, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, there's also that catch-all now you see in most Part 36 letters now, you see, you know, if, if you don't understand any of this or if, you know, if any of it looks looks strange to you, let us know, you know, so there's there's plenty of opportunity there to say, surely your dates are wrong, haven't we got until then? Um, yeah, if you start raising it in a skeleton when you're trying to evade the Part 36 yeah. consequences, yeah. it's not quite <laughs> as powerful, is it, No. 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 It, it, another case which, um, sorry. It, it just reduces the number of, you know, aha, things that we can get away yeah. with um but uh, uh, that's, that's probably times have changed there are bad cases where a part 36 is duff but you know it has to be a, a bit better than this i suppose is the answer and i think the other part 36 case we were going to look at which is heading for the delightfully um entitled lacuna subcommittee um, Pallet and MGN, which I think is interesting, isn't it? And I, I um, yeah, it is interesting. So the, this phone hacking case, the, the claimant made a Part 36 offer, and it's a 2021 decision of Mr Justice Mann. The claimant made a Part 36 offer um, on the 20th of October 2020 with a 21-day period for acceptance. And the defendant accepted it on the 22nd day and it was clear that was deliberate and that's set out in the judgment. The defendant clearly didn't dissent from that. And the reason the defendant did that was to escape the automatic consequence if you settle, take the offer within 21 days, that you're liable for the claimant's costs. And so the first question Mr Justice Mann was asked to consider was whether if you do that, it's right that costs are then at large and that the court has to decide them and the claimant didn't accept that, but Mr Justice Mann said that followed from a strict reading of CPR 3613. So if 3613 applies, if you accept within 21 days as a deemed cost order, and if 3613.4 you accept with outside, then the um, costs are to be determined by the court unless agreed. Um, so, so then the defendant tried to argue that it shouldn't 
have to um, pay the claimant's costs. That was always going to be an uphill battle. The arguments were based on a failure to engage in settlement negotiations earlier in proceedings. Um, and the defendant failed on all those arguments. So Mr Justice Mann found that the um, claimant had reasons which weren't unreasonable for not engaging in horse trading with the defendant and for declining to negotiate until they had got disclosure, full disclosure, and that was an entirely reasonable tactic. Um, so he, and he went out of his way, given the, in the general context of the phone hacking litigation, to say, don't think claimants that you can refuse to negotiate and wait until you get disclosure. That's not always going to be reasonable, but it was on the facts of this particular case. Now, that, um, that decision caused a bit of consternation um, at the Lacuna subcommittee meeting and the minutes are online um, and they talk about the tactical use of part 36 so waiting until the 22nd day um, so that you're not subject to the default cost consequences and um, it was agreed at the Lacuna subcommittee that the point would go to the civil procedural cost subcommittee for consideration and they talked about a couple of options which were including the addition of express wording regarding the cost position when an offer is accepted outside the relevant period, or the introduction of a rule that you can't um, accept an offer outside 21 days without the offeror having a chance to decide whether the offer is still open. Now, to my mind, and I'd be interested to hear your views, both of those seem to me completely unworkable. <laughs> you can't, the whole point of part 36 is that an offer stays on the table um, to be accepted if the other party decides that it should. That, that is the way part 36 works, for good reason, in my view. Um, and I can't see that going back to the party who made the offer to check that it's still OK <laughs> to accept it is, is at all is workable. Yeah. Um, and as for express wording, very difficult to see how that would work. Well, let's see if they do come up with something. But... It seems to me that position is fairly clear as it is, but if you try and do what happened in this case, you're going to face an insurmountable obstacle or a very a formidable obstacle to get around the Part 36 consequences. And you're back in the territory we've just been going over. It's really hard to show that the ordinary consequences shouldn't apply. So what at do you the risk of betraying my, um, my roots and, uh, on the claimant side of phone hacking litigation, Andy and I were against each other in, in that a few years ago. Um, I actually can't see anything wrong with the decision. Um, what do no. you do as a defendant if you are faced with a, an, an offer um, which will attract, if you accept it, automatic cost consequences, which might be grossly unfair um, in, in, in certain situations? But I, I don't actually see there's a problem with the decision. I think the problem was, and I don't really criticise the, the defendants for taking this point, but it wasn't a very good case on its facts. It was, in fact, a dreadful case on its facts. They'd refused to give the uh, disclosure, which is automatic in phone hacking litigation, um, at a very early stage. Uh, and then and, and they made an offer. They insisted on, on making an offer at that stage and, and calling for a counteroffer, complained that that hadn't been done. And then later on, they made further offers, which, again, were not responded to because each of their further offers was contingent upon the claimant accepting that they should have negotiated much earlier and being deprived of, of costs after, I think in the first case, um, defence, I can't remember, but a fairly early stage uh, if the offers had been accepted. So um, I just think it was it was a bad case in its fact. Yeah. I'm not sure that um, there's anything wrong with the decision in principle. 
what do you think, Andy? You, you're you're a defence man in this, so you should probably be. Yeah, I mean, I, I, declaring a, um, a, a, an interest. You know, we do we are instructed from time to time by um, Breach PLC as they now are in relation to the um, uh, mirror hacking litigation. Uh, we weren't directly involved on this case. Um, still, probably wrong of me to talk about that in much detail. Um, but in terms of in terms of the wider issue of what can a defendant do in a situation where they think they've they think they think we're at the right number and they want to say snap, but they also fear that there are potentially um, large pockets of cost that would be claimed along with it. They and they don't feel as if the the cost courts will give them sufficient room to argue about all of those. Um, then they try and cut it off. I can understand why they would want to try and influence it at the judge level. Um, yeah. But, but I, mean, I, I mean, I accept, I, mean, I understand, I follow exactly what you say, and I can understand why this perhaps wasn't the best case for, for it to be run on. What comes up more regularly, and it happens quite a lot in, um, in media and communications list cases, is where um, actually the disclosure is all, would all be on the claimant side rather than the, rather than the defendant side. And they rush to issue proceedings, uh, and then once the once the media organisation has, has has got its tackling order and further of understanding what the case against them it is, and the evidence that would correct the record or so on and so forth, by by which time they say, well, okay, sure, you know, have, you know, have the money, have the apology, have this, have that, and why didn't you follow the uh, the pre-action protocol, say, for example. Um, uh, and in that situation, uh, they, they sometimes fear that there isn't enough teeth at the cost judge level to actually take out things like cost of issue and so on and so forth. You know. Well, and you can also, so in, for instance, a heavy clinical negligence action, you can imagine that a claim being run sort of 10 million, then um, the claimant makes a part 36 offer of 250,000, which clearly the defendant would want to accept. They don't want to pay six million pounds worth of costs, as Jeremy says. I can see it's legitimate then to wait until 20, 22 days after the offer. And then one thing you could clearly do if you're going to the equivalent of the trial judge is to ask for a percentage cost order, yeah. um, which is absolutely not open to you if you're paying these. It's the big thing that isn't open to you if you're simply arguing at the cost assessment stage, isn't it? So I, I agree, Jeremy. I think. To my mind, there are situations in which you would yeah. do this and do it successfully to try and force. Yeah. Um, there ought to be a way of a way of applying to the court for permission to accept an offer on terms that there's a partial cost order as opposed to a full cost order based yeah. on X, Y, and Z. Why, why wouldn't you? Do yeah. that, that, should, yeah. that should be open to you. Yeah, but that's really what they devised in this case, isn't it? I, yeah, exactly. I think. Yeah. Anyway, moving on quickly and not forgetting the Lacuna subcommittee. There's another burning issue they're going to have to um, deal with soon, I think, Judith. Yes, so um, it's the decision of, of the cost judge Leonard about um, cost of cost assessment, basically. Um, and that's heading for the Lacuna subcommittee as well. Um, the, the question is whether you can make a part 36 and get the part 36 prizes in respect of the um, costs of detailed assessment. Um, and Master Leonard found that you couldn't do that, um, but that is heading for the Lacuna subcommittee. And um, well, I, I, it's, it's difficult. I, I think again, the decision is right because it's hard to see what else could happen. Really, 
Um, and I've, I've come across this argument already in a, in a slightly different context, but it, it's one that crops up from time to time. So the defendant accepted a part 36 offer out of time, costs of detailed assessment, um, the claimant's costs got their costs of detailed assessment, those were to be decided. Um, claimant beat a part 36 offer on the cost of detailed assessment which it had tried to make and sought the part 36 benefits. And what Master Leonard found was that you can't make, make a separate um, part 36 offer for the cost of detailed assessment. It's, it's 40, rule 47 says that detailed assessment is an independent claim for the purposes of part 36, but it doesn't say that the costs of detailed assessment are. Um, it, it wasn't a freestanding claim, and so you couldn't make a Part 36 offer for those costs. Um, but that has, it's not just gone to the lacuna subcommittee, it's gone to the, it's been referred on to the cost subcommittee to see if they should do anything further about it. But again, it, it seems to me extremely difficult to see what they could do about it. Maybe they will devise a um, clever solution. But as what Master Leonard said very powerfully was that if it was possible to make a part 36 for the cost of detailed assessment, the, you could then do it for those costs and then for the next cost, and you'd end up in this endless regression from which you could never escape. <coughs> part 36 offers, which you then beat, got a little bit more. It could carry on forever, basically. So I suppose it's possible that you could say you should be able to make a part 36 for the cost of detailed assessment, but that's it. So they would put a stop to the endless regression. Um, and, that, and that will be an answer to the problem that I've raised, but, but whether it's worth doing that, I don't know. What, what do you and do you, Jeremy and Andy think about it? And obviously the cost of DA can be enormous. <laughs> and it's often, they're often bitterly contested as we all know. Um, yeah, when do you make that offer for the cost of detailed assessment? You know, you may only have notice of what they, I mean, you'd be guessing at what they would be. Because they're generally summarily assessed. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. Um, yes, I mean, I can imagine um, it, it won't take long for them to conclude this is all too much. You know, what's, what's wrong with what we have now? Um, uh, that would be that would be rectified by, um, by by extending part 36 into the cost of detailed assessment. Um, so I'm 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 reasonably neutral about it. I've got to say. Um, yeah, I'd agree. Seems a sensible decision. Yeah. Um, say, I mean, they're almost always summarily assessed, really, as you say. So it's difficult to see that this is. There, there were quite unusual facts. Um, on this case, actually. So I, I don't know that it is a huge problem, one that you could fashion a sensible solution to with it without it all getting out of hand, really. And then more arguments about whether you've got the consequences. Yeah, I mean, I know to, on, a, on a sort of related area, um, I mean, I, I, I started to advocate for like a pre-assessment protocol in large cases because of um, the, the, the common attempts that are encouraged to compromise costs and start with a schedule as opposed to a full bill but schedule's not a term of art so therefore you know if you if you prescribe the amount of detail that should be in them would that help and so on and so forth um, and I must admit I that fell on on stony ground most places I 
I, I suggested it on the basis of, uh, you know, oh, more stuff about cost, you know. Um, but uh, I still think that would be a reasonable idea in, 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 in big cases. And maybe that's the key to part 36 in practical terms. It's when the costs of detailed assessment are going to be six figures, say, or something like that, you know, potentially. And they are such a big line item in their own. Uh, in their own right, maybe that that's the time to, to, to think about it. But um, where do you end? Couldn't you, you make budget, a call about budgeting, budgeting for detailed assessment costs as well? Yeah, there's nothing. Yeah. There's nothing to stop is you making you a good old-fashioned call the bank, is there? So yeah, yeah, precisely. Just do that. Um, when do you get 21 days between knowing that you're going to be in? You know, it's speculative, isn't it? If we don't beat out, you know, part 36 off. <laughs> On the, yeah, then we'll make you an offer in relation to your cost. Yeah. I mean, I suppose you can say if you what, what would you do if you were having a preliminary issue in the detailed assessment about hourly yeah. rates, yeah. proportionality, for instance, could you could you make that? I suppose that might give you time to start making part 36 offers. About yeah, I mean, I've, got, I've known Calder Bank offers to be made on on those sorts of issues. Um, because you know there, there there there'd be a you know a full day hearing on on preliminary issues of some sort, and people would say, well, if you don't get if you don't get X or Y, you know, we want our costs of it. Um, I've known call to bank offers about extensions of time applications. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so it, but uh, generally speaking, the, it's it's hard to get people's attention. It's hard to get judicial attention for them. Well, we <laughs> if it gets the lacuna subcommittees. Uh, Serious attention. Maybe there'll be a lacuna for lacuna subcommittees after. Yeah, <laughs> they won't turn up. <laughs> they won't turn up that day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just to move on to our, our final topic briefly, um, the Solicitors Act. Any, any solicitors who thought they were going to be able to end this, um, watching this uh, session. On, on, on a happy note, um, I'd just like to disagree with that. <laughs> well, um, there's been a whole slew of recent decisions um, on in solicitor act assessments, and it, I, I read them all again this morning. So um, there are at least five or six. So Carmel's and Ransford, that's a High Court judge decision, and Mr. Justice Waxman. Actually, that's about default. Um, default judgment on solicitors bill so that's perhaps a case we might discuss separately but um there's a case from november 2020 earlham and edmunds decision of master brown decision of the senior cost judge in june iwayanya and ratcliffe that's june of last year january this year masters and charles fussell and there are a couple of others and that really that they cover the same issues don't they um it's about whether um the solicitor was entitled to render interim statute bills or whether they were bills on account, whether there was a contractual entitlement to render them, whether the bill was a proper bill triggering the right to um, the Solicitor's Act assessment, whether it was a Chamberlain bill, and if the bills were rendered, um, were paid within 12 months of the application for detailed assessment, special, whether special circumstances Exist. And I suppose one thing that does emerge from these cases is that the threshold for establishing special circumstances is pretty low. Um, if you come within the, you pay within 12 months territories, basically it comes down to does the bill call for an explanation? It is a low threshold, the courts repeatedly say it's not exceptional circumstances. But, but 
all these decisions, there's a lot of money and effort spent on argument about whether these are bills which trigger the Solicitors Act timetables and tests under Section 70 at all. And it's interesting then to go back to um, a talk that the senior cost judge gave a practical talk in February 2019, so over two years ago, when he talked about the fact that the Solicitors Act um, it was a very early piece of consumer legislation which had its antecedents as far back as the 1770s. Um, it, it wasn't really fit for purpose anymore. The act, even this act in its current incarnation, and there were several before it, is from 1970. The cases under it are labyrinthine, basically. And um, it's very difficult to, I, I think, and I've dealt with quite a lot of these cases over the years, um, you can take almost every point if you really want to try. And that's what happened in these cases. Just about everything was run about what form these bills took, whether special circumstances applied or not, whether a detailed assess assessment should happen and whether a detailed assessment should happen on conditions. So I, I would... Um, agree that its status, the, the Solicitors Act Section 70's status as a piece of consumer protection legislation, which is what it was all about, protecting unsophisticated clients from solicitors who weren't clear enough about what they were going to do in cost terms and giving them the right to assessment, that it isn't really fit for purpose anymore. But whether anybody's got an appetite in the current climate to try and do something about it is um, a very different matter. What the senior cost judge suggested was that the law society needed to get a handle on it and start trying to move for legislative change. But um, certainly I've read nothing, including a preparation for this, which indicates that there is any appetite to do anything about it. But it's clear just from these authorities that it is taking up a lot of time in the costs office, which is exactly what the senior cost judge said more than two years ago. Well, there are also there are firms, aren't there now, which are making uh, specialised yeah. in, in helping clients to challenge their solicitors' bills. Yep. Um, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a perfectly reasonable line of business. It's, it's unnerving for, for the solicitors in, in question. I think um, one of the points that the senior cost judge made in his talk was quite an interesting one, which is that solicitors and their clients face this very complex um, as you say, consumer protection legislation um, with a lot of very technical rules, which um, not many people understand. So it's very easy, whether you're solicitor or client, to fall foul of them. Um, but there is competition in the legal services field from, for example, accountants who don't have uh, anything like um, the same uh, degree of control over their costs. So I think there's quite a, a strong argument now for at least taking a new look uh, at it all. Um, and the other point which I think emerges from the case is, is this. Um, the, the strict application of the rules under the Solicitors Act on assessing costs um, can, if the solicitor gets his or her tackle in order, require the client in the middle of litigation to make up their mind whether they want to seek detailed assessment of their solicitor's bill. Well, it's hard to think of very many more inflammatory things than that. And the last thing you want to do is to be fighting on two fronts, fighting you know, with your own solicitor at the same time as fighting on the other side. But in fact, that's what the rules yeah. uh, can require you to do if, if the solicitor has got um, his or her act together. Yeah. So uh, I think that the, there is really a, a need now for something to be done about uh, the situation. 
I, mean, I, I completely agree. So obviously, if, if a solicitor has got the contractual right to render interim statute bills, and often it isn't clear enough in retainer documentation, but if the solicitor's got his house in order and has established that right contractually, then, then the client has to start using that right, use, has to start using the right to detailed assessment in order not to fall foul of the timetable in Section 70 as the litigation's ongoing. And that's, I mean, really scarcely possible. And as you say inflammatory um, and I, I also agree with something I think the senior cost judge said and I've seen it said elsewhere that as success fees cease to be recoverable into parties in almost all litigation and are only recoverable if at all from your own solicitor that that in itself is going to give rise to more solicitor client disputes and clearly is that's what a lot of these firms are um, interested in looking at isn't it and a simplified way of, of of having that sort of assessment has got to be a good idea in my view yes andy uh, well uh, i i mean it's it, it, sadly um falling out with solicitors over costs halfway through it doesn't normally mean that you are necessarily battling with them while they're still going to represent you it normally triggers moving on to solicitor number one or number two or and that sometimes becomes solicitor number three or number four and the whole thing is the whole thing then becomes um most unpleasant um but, but certainly um i think that there is room for a, a, a sort of root and branch review of um what the client's legitimate expectation should be about the type of information they get and what is a payment on account and what's an interim bill and what's final and what isn't. Um, because, you know, frankly, um, not wanting to be unkind to the um, uh, to, to the hand that feeds us, but, you know, uh, most solicitors I know don't, if you asked them what the difference was between an interim on account bill and an interim statute bill, they wouldn't know. And that's the business that they're in. You know, so, so therefore, you know, how is Joe Public supposed to know that? Um, and uh, um, you, you see, in the, in the days when they were delivered by paper, they'd often be um, small print that probably didn't even relate to the type of business that was being conducted. It would cover non-contentious business when it was contentious, and vice versa. Um, so there, there is a, there's a. The, 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 I agree with uh, Andrew Gordon Saker that it's about time somebody looked at it. Um, not going to be me. <laughs> it might be the Law Society. It would be good if it was some somebody, but you know who, uh, who's got the time. In, in the meantime, yes, there's a there's a burgeoning industry. Um, I would imagine off the back of this, and uh, I suppose sooner or later somebody will still be turning up arguing about whether disbursements have been marked as unpaid or what have you or not. Getting you know, Bill. Wishing to, um, to, to, to wrap it up, um, given that, as you say, the, uh, we know which is the hand that feeds us for the most part, um, <laughs> one message for, for those who are watching this, um, who aren't clients, is do look at your terms of business very carefully. Do read these cases. They're a very salutary warning. And you will find in them um, the fairly clear guidance on what you need to do in order to make your, your bills statute bills if that's what you want to do uh, and make sure that your terms of business reflect that and if you're in a senior position with the firm make sure that uh, all the fee owners are sending out the right terms of business it really is absolutely critical and it can be um, heartbreaking and incredibly frustrating particularly when you've done a very good job for a client 
um, for the client to turn around and take advantage of the fact that you didn't get your client's business quite right at the beginning yeah. and um, be able to challenge um, perhaps five years worth of bills, which if you got it right, they wouldn't have been able to do. No, I think that's I think that's absolutely right, and you know we are in the world where, um, you know, for, for every solicitor that does things, um, you know, that does things very badly and, and and almost willfully badly, there are many more sore losers on the client side and sore winners on the, on the client side as well, and uh, it's it's a very uh, a, 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 a very nasty cases to be involved in, I, I find. Any last words, Judith? No, I mean, I think the biggest thing that's looming on the horizon is, is the speech of um, the, the Vice Chancellor or Justice Boss about making ADR compulsory. And that clearly, um, that is now hovering back in the close wings again. And that clearly probably will have a big impact on the way costs works. It would have an impact on, I imagine, Part 36 and everything else, but we'll just have to wait and see what actually happens now. Clearly the courts have shied away from that. And the legislature has shied away from that up till now, but it is back on the agenda. Well, uh, thanks on behalf of Practico to Judith for um, spending the time to share her thoughts on these important issues. And um, thanks from Andy and me on behalf of Practico um, to all of you for watching. As we said, you will be getting a note of uh, what was said today. Um, if you're on the uh, Practico list, and um, hopefully you haven't spent your time scribbling down notes and case references um, while watching this video. And we look forward to hearing you, to seeing you, or not seeing you, for you seeing, we look forward to you seeing us um, <laughs> on, on the next one. Not that clever yet. Thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Thanks very much. Okay, thanks everybody.